Hello, and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. This week's episode is proudly sponsored by XL Moto, the one-stop motorcycle shop, whether you need gear for your motorcycle, clothing, helmets, gloves, jackets, boots, or you need tools to fix your bike, socket sets, or you need any other type of thing relating to a motorcycle, you can pretty much almost guarantee you can get it from XL Moto. You can even get oil, battery, things like that. This month, actually, in fact, tomorrow morning, I'll be going out and fitting a, I think it's called a smart battery charger. Let me have a look at this. Yeah, it's a ProWorks smart battery charger from, that you can buy from XL Moto. Fit it to your battery and then just connect a small wire that I'll hide under the side panel of my bike, which basically means that I will be able to, if my battery gets low, instead of having to take the battery out, take the seat off, etc., etc., I'll just be able to plug in that port into the battery charging terminal to uh, a mains outlet instead of taking the battery out of the bike. Could be a bit of a game changer for me, so I'm really excited to fit that. So check them out, xlmoto.com for your one-stop motorcycle shop. Right. Okay. I just wanted to say, actually, at the start of this episode, thank you so much, everyone, for emailing in uh, your your questions, your queries about motorbikes. I've I love reading all of them. If I don't get to them, get if I don't get to those points on the following podcast episode, I do save them all and I do try and get through all of them because I love reading them. So if you've got any questions, anything you'd like me to discuss, ping me over an email dob.bs at outlook.com. Uh, you can find all the details on freddydobbs.com as well if you, uh, if you need them. Right, okay, here we go. Let's begin. I've got too much exciting stuff. Quick bit of Ron Miel. Honeywam, right. Update. Monday morning. Oh, this sounds pathetic. It's 11 o'clock on Monday morning. I've just said I'm having some Ron Miel. Blue skies outside, a little bit windy in Tenerife. Been out on the bike this weekend, absolutely glorious. It's been about 25, 26 degrees. I begin from JJ. Hello, Freddie. I hope Monica and you are well. I was reading in the news this morning and came across an article on BBC about MPs calling for a new road tax, which looks to be specifically aimed at electric car and bike users. It reminds me of something you spoke about on one of your recent podcast episodes about how the government will attempt to claw back lost revenue from petrol and diesel cars. Uh, petrol and diesel car users when we go electric. I thought you'd find it interesting. JJ. JJ, this is good because I hadn't seen this, so thank you so much. I'm on the BBC website here, and I'll just read the first little bit of this to give you an idea. From the BBC, the UK needs to create a new motoring tax to plug the revenue gap as drivers switch to electric cars, members of parliament have said. The government should tax motorists based on miles travelled as the use of petrol and diesel vehicles decreases, the Transport Select Committee said. If no action is taken by this year, the UK faces a £35 billion black hole in its finances, they said. 
the Treasury said that tax revenues would keep pace with changes prompted by electric vehicle take-up. Sales of petrol and diesel vehicles and vans will be banned in the UK from 2030 uh, and sales of electric cars will be soaring. Right, okay, so the government's got a £35 billion a year black hole. This is, this is exactly what I said uh, a month or so ago. Yes, right now, if you go out and you buy an electric car or motorbike, you will get tax savings. For example, you won't need to pay any road tax in the UK on your car. And I think you even get a £1,500 uh, tax incentive, £1,500 towards buying your car from the government. Bear in mind that used to be £2,500, so the government have almost halved that already. The point is... It may be cheap at the moment to run an electric vehicle because if you charge it at home, you'll be paying a very, very low amount compared to petrol or diesel, a very low amount. It's incredibly good value at the moment. It really does make a huge amount of financial sense to have an electric vehicle. Yes, they are, they are dreadful on long journeys. I've tried them, they're awful, awful because charging network is so bad, purely because of the charging network. But, but, they do offer huge money-saving options. However, this is not going to be the case for much longer. The government will not bend over backwards and accept that they're losing 35 million a year and give us all a pat on the back because we're saving the environment. The, the government doesn't work like that. The government will, it, they, they class money-making, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing because I know running a government is business. The government will class making money over, uh, over almost all else. Of course, they need to make sure that there are the environmental protective elements in there, but they have to be making money. They will not shake our hands as we're driving off into the sunset with electric vehicles and say, thank you for saving the environment. There you go. There's your money that you've saved. It's not going to happen. We are only going to be buying electric vehicles only because we care about the environment and we're saving the planet. There will be almost no cost-saving element to it within the next two to three years because the government will be taxing us per mile that we drive the vehicle. It will, it will in my mind, almost completely get rid of any potential tax savings or savings when you're filling up or fully charging your vehicle compared to filling up with fuel because the government just they're going to slap a huge amount of tax on every single mile that we ride or drive and how will they be able to check that well first things first they're talking about installing electric chargers in all new build homes and having a separate charging element in every house where you legally will have to charge your vehicle with that specific charging element so the government can actually monitor how much you're charging it. And secondly, if I can remember what I was about to say, oh, and, and secondly, every vehicle, every vehicle soon is going to be fully monitored. The government will be able to check everything on your vehicle. They'll be able to check how many miles a year you do. They'll be able to check everything that will go be automated. It will go straight through to the system. For example, if I'm being completely honest, I insure my cars for, I think it's about 4,000 miles a year. When in, in reality, I probably do about 15,000 miles a year. Yeah, the reality is no one's going to check and no one will have any real idea. It's just, it's not realistic to expect me to ever get caught out. I know there's a chance I could get caught out, but the reality is I'm probably not going to get caught out. However, however, if we're talking level-headedly here, once everything 
is electronic and everything is easily monitorable, you know, all of our data from the, the way we drive, are we driving dangerously? Everything like that is going through onto the, the car and the bike's internal electronic systems. And that is incredibly easy to monitor now. For example, if we have a crash, most of the time now, the police can tell whose fault it was just by going into the car's little block, black box and telling exactly what you were doing when you're driving before the crash. So the government are going to know exactly what's going on and they will be taxing you. My guess is they'll be taxing us exactly in line with how petrol and diesel are being taxed at the moment, i.e. gigantically. So the government will start taxing the electricity you use on your vehicles very, very soon. It's really interesting. It's evolving incredibly quickly and it has to because the take up of electric vehicles is now picking up pace things are going to be changing very quickly because the government will not even want to lose one penny on this. They won't want to lose one penny a year on this. So they've got a black hole they need to fill quickly. Right, JJ, that was, that was incredibly interesting. Thank you so much for sending that over from the BBC. Right. What do I see as the future of classic motorcycles with the forecoming electrification? of personal transport. This is just kind of carrying on from what I've just been talking about, actually. This is from Ander. Um, sorry, Ander, I can't remember exactly where you're from, but it must be a Scandinavian country. Right, from Ander. Freddie, I'm a total petrol head with a growing interest in classic cars and bikes. I currently own a 2000 MV Augusta, uh, MV Augusta F4 750, which I purchased a couple of years ago as my first real bike. I'm a fan of Italian bikes, specifically the classic ones. It's not just the design what I, that I find attractive. There's some kind of romanticism attached to them that is hard to describe. For example, I read a book about the F4 and the story is fascinating. Claudio Castiglioni and Maximo Taborini decided to bring MV Augusta back to its glory days while having dinner at a restaurant in Rimini. Claudio's obsession with his Ferrari F40 pushed, uh, pushed his desire of creating the F40 of motorcycles. Do you know, I, I share your passion, Ander, with, with pretty much all things Italian. They're, they're characters, the Italians, and they do things with such a huge amount of passion and style. I mean, styling. For the Italians, it's essential. I always remember going into... I had an Italian girlfriend for about seven years. And uh, she was from Milan. And that just fashion, clothing, it's, it's part of their lifestyle. You know, they've all got Prada handbags. They all dress impeccably. And I remember once going into a shoe shop with my girlfriend at the time. And I think her mum walked into a shoe shop. And this was... This was probably about 13 years ago when everyone in the UK was wearing Timberlands and baggy jeans. So I, I walk in in my old Timberlands and the person there who, who worked there, the shop assistant said, what the beep? What the beep are those? He looked at my shoes and said, what the F are those? He said, we need to get you some new shoes immediately. It's, it's completely unforgivable in Italy to wander around in Timberlands or things that aren't elegant. So I got ripped to pieces. I went absolutely beetroot because I was there with my girlfriend of the time and her mum and I was getting absolutely torn to pieces for wearing Timberlands in an Italian shoe shop. They're characters. 
I'm a huge fan. I've got a Fiat 500 and it is the best car I've ever had. And Italian bikes are amazing and old Italian classic cars are amazing. They do things with such passion. I, I love everything about it. And they are the types of bikes that, or cars, but bikes easier to get in a home. They're the types of bikes that are artwork. You just want to keep them in your home just to look at them. They're so stunningly designed. Right, okay, I'm, I'm continuing. I went off on a tangent. Apology, Ander. Okay, having said that, while I love the F4 and it's going nowhere, the bike I really wanted to purchase was the Ducati 916. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find a suitable, suitable candidate that was in good enough condition within my budget. I've been checking eBay and Autotrader for used 916s almost on a daily basis since I bought the F4. I thought that I'd be happy with it and settle, but that hasn't been the case. I still want a 916. I think about it every day. I don't think I would have any regrets had I purchased the Ducati instead. This goes to show, as you pointed out, how important it is to buy the bike that you love, regardless of its practicality, reliability, and any other of that stuff. The desire will not go away, and I'm talking from experience. I'm glad you said that, Ander, because I feel strongly about this. I have wasted so many thousands of pounds buying vehicles, whether it's cars or motorbikes in the past. Sometimes vehicles that were, I know I'm saying only, I know it's still a lot of money, but sometimes vehicles that were only, you know, 500 pounds, a thousand pounds cheaper than the one I really wanted. And I thought, no, nope, no, 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 save that 500 pounds, save that thousand pounds and just get the cheaper version. But the reality is, you know, and I know I'm talking relatively speaking here, but the reality is you're not going to miss the 500 pounds, a thousand pounds. You're not going to miss it in, you know, you're not going to miss it in, in one or two months time. This actually happened with me. I was furious at myself. Absolutely furious. I, I was in Zara about three weeks ago. And I bought a pair of loafers that I liked. They're in Zara. I bought them. They're 50 euros. I really like them. But the shoes I really wanted were a 100 euro pair of uh, boating shoes. But I thought, no, no, Fred, save, save the 50 euros. Just save it. You'll be happy with that. Go and get the Zara ones. I didn't quite like them as much, but I thought that saving's good. The reality is, Six days later, I thought, look, am I going to be looking my bank dancing at the fact I've got an extra 50 euros? No, I'm not. So in the end, I realized I actually still really wanted the 100 euro pair of shoes. So I ended up going out to buy them both. So now I've got two pairs of shoes and I'm only ever going to wear one of those two pairs. And it's, it's the same principle if it's clothing or cars or motorbikes. If you can stretch to it, just stretch. You're not going to miss the extra bit of money in reality in the long run. And I continue. This, now, here we go. This is where it gets interesting for Amanda. I could invest in a 996 now. However, prices are high and the future's a bit uncertain. I mean, I don't really know what's going to happen with the classic combustion engine uh, bikes pre uh, post-2030 when the petrol ban comes into effect. My common sense tells me that prices will skyrocket for iconic cars and bikes due to their rarity and also I think combustion engines will be seen as something exotic and desirable. But what will happen with petrol? What if its prices skyrocket 
as well as the point that nobody wants combustion engines anymore and prices drop massively. I suppose that's the million pound question, but it is this uncertainty that prevents me from taking a small financial hit now and purchasing the 916 in good condition. What would you do? Do you think the crazy prices we're seeing now in the secondhand market will eventually go down? This is something I've been so interested in and uh, I, I feel really, really strongly that with, with the incoming electrification of everything, it will actually start to push up the petrol, the petrol vehicle, the internal combustion vehicle prices of the desirable ones specifically. Of course, if I have a Ford Fiesta that's 12 years old, it's probably not going to be a classic for a while. But I think, I honestly believe it will have no impact at all. And if you're looking to go out there and buy a special car or motorbike, buy it. And I think you can buy it with absolute certainty that it will be an appreciating classic. Because if we go back, let's go back and look at the, the classic cars of the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, as an example, when they, were, when they were running on leaded fuel, I think it was. I mean, I remember when I started driving in 2003, there was still leaded fuel being sold at the fuel pumps. And I remember thinking it was a premium fuel. So I used to fill up my Nissan Sunny with leaded fuel until set for, someone said, Freddie, what the, what the hell are you doing? Filling up with leaded fuel. I said, no, this is premium fuel. They said, no, no, it's four star and leaded, not four star premium. So that took me about four months of filling up with leaded fuel to realize that it wasn't actually the right fuel for my car, but it was fine at the time. So my point being, we used to have leaded fuel, that's now gone. And it means it's, it's more of a pain for the older cars with leaded fuel to, to be run with. So you need to probably add some additives and things like that. And then comes along E10 fuel, meaning that any car or most cars built before 2010, there's a very good chance that your car isn't going to run properly on this new E10 fuel. And I think E10 fuel will be the norm by 2025. So... So we've got the E10 fuel coming. So that's now going to push all vehicles made pre-2010 into some kind of vehicles that are going to be significantly more tricky to run because the engines could get damaged from this new, from this new fuel. So now you're actually pushing cars that are just 12 years old right now into cars that are, you know, are compromised. And we've got, on top of that, compounding all of this all the time, we've got things like the, the ultra-low emissions charge in London. And that means that if you've got a car that's older than 2008, the chances are you are going to have to pay £12 a day or so to drive into London. And guess what? This is rolling out in more and more towns. Now, my point, you could think my point here is, well, Freddie, you're just proving a point. Petrol motorbikes, petrol cars, whatever. Petrol vehicles are going to become completely worthless because of all these restrictions. But that is honestly the, the exact opposite of my point because my point is, with everything going on at the moment, these cars, petrol cars and petrol bikes are going to become, uh, slowly over time, it will be a gradual process, but as more and more get scrapped and traded in for electric vehicles, you know, the majority of these petrol vehicles, they will start being scrapped. The special ones will be kept, of course. And as these petrol car numbers and petrol bike numbers reduce and reduce and reduce, you're left with 
a, a condensed amount of usually nice vehicles. And even if they're not nice vehicles, they start becoming classics because the reality is as petrol vehicle numbers decrease and the uptake of electric, ve electric vehicles increases, the scarcity factor of these internal combustion vehicles will make them more and more desirable. And the reality is that if we look back at these classic cars, whether we're looking at E-type Jags, let's start with an E-type Jag. How many miles do owners of these E-types actually do in a year? Incredibly small amounts. They don't buy them really to drive them. They drive them because it's a thing to own. It's a desirable thing to own. It's an object to own, possibly more than an actual vehicle. It's a symbol of a specific point in time. These cars, whether it's a classic Jag, or I'll get to this in a point uh, in a second, uh, a newer one, a Peugeot 205, whatever type of classic it is, People don't drive them because they're brilliant to drive. They're usually awful to drive. They drive them because they're incredibly desirable and incredibly collectible. And that desirability and collectability will not diminish even 1% once electrification is here. In fact, they're going to become more and more desirable because they were so much of their time. They're not driven anyway. The more classic vehicles get, the more the prices go up, the more people are scared to drive them. Let's have a look at the Peugeot 205, for example, the Peugeot 205 GTI. Well, I remember when that was 800 pounds years ago. You're looking at about 15,000 pounds now. And as the price of these goes up, the usage goes down. People become more wary of driving them. They start realizing, hold on, I'm dealing here with an appreciating classic. I don't want to be putting too much extra mileage on the vehicle and I don't want to be potentially ruining the vehicle with driving it more and more. I want to keep it as a garage queen. And it's just a fact, it's the way it is. For these desirable vehicles, they are an object more than a vehicle. And they always, always, in my mind, and I feel strongly about this, they will always, always keep their value. And in fact, I think that the vast majority of desirable cars and motorbikes will steadily increase in value. I think they will be a superb investment because the reality is you're not going to be using it much at all. You're not going to be doing big Euro tours and a 916 Ducati. You're going to own it because it's an incredibly special motorcycle to own and you just want the feeling of owning it. And I get that I would absolutely do the same. So I think, and uh, you're in safe hands, I really very strongly believe go out, buy the 916, it will be going up in value. It will only get more and more desirable as the years go on. All right. Ooh, James. Okay, um, shall I say it now or later? Uh, I will, no, I'll read out what James has written in and then I will, I will say something after that. Okay, Freddie. I was quite surprised when you mentioned that people have messaged you saying that Motoguzzi are made from Chinese parts. Gone are the days that Motoguzzi makes everything in-house, but I was under the impression that Italy itself still has a strong motor industry due to having a number of different car and scooter and motorcycle manufacturers who can share suppliers. Just down the road from the Guzzi factory in Mandello, uh, Dell'Ario, is La Fra. La Franconi, exhausts and Giardino castings, 
so I would be disappointed if they are not using them anymore. I've owned two good C's, so maybe biased, but would be genuinely interested in what parts are coming from China or whether the CF Motor Marketing Department have just taken you for a ride. As for the, uh, okay, that's the first bit. I want to get to this now. Uh, the reason James has sent this in is because when I posted a video on YouTube, I think I was, I was listening to an argument, a discussion between two bikers. I think one of them was a Triumph rider um, and Triumphs are now made in Thailand. And another was a Motoguzzi rider, I think. And I think the Motoguzzi rider said to the, the Triumph rider, well, at least Motoguzzi's are, are actually made in their country of origin. At least they're made in Italy. And I think the Triumph replied, uh, the Triumph rider replied by saying, look, all that happens with Motoguzzi are the parts are made in China and then the last bit of assembling is done in Italy at Motoguzzi's headquarters. So this is what James is, uh, is touching upon here. And I've done some research on this, James, as much as I can. I've looked everywhere and I have to say, because I've now mentioned it a couple of times, that Motoguzzi parts are made in China and then shipped and assembled in Italy. I think that's absolutely wrong. Uh, so apologies for this. I may have been spreading some misinformation. Everything I can find online about Motoguzzi says that uh, all of the bikes are assembled and manufactured in Italy and all of the, the parts, as far as I can tell, as far as I can tell, and I've looked everywhere that I can, uh, pretty much all of the, uh, the actual individual parts, all of the mechanics, all of the... Um, all of the bits of the bikes are actually made in Italy, and I've looked everywhere. As far as I can tell, it looks like Motoguzzi is just about the purest motorbike if you're looking for a bike that is of a specific country. You know, you could look at Harley-Davidson's. Well, I know they're made, in, they're made in Thailand. I think they're about to start making them in China. They make them in lots of different countries. In Triumph, they make them in Thailand. It's, it happens all the time. Motoguzzi, as far as I can tell, 100% of Motoguzzi's are, are definitely made in Italy. And it looks like all of the components and all of the parts are also made in Italy. So actually, you're absolutely right, James, to pull me up on this. Motoguzzi is a proper, as Italian as it gets company. And I'm going to prove a point here. Two articles that I've got, one from a magazine I like a lot, Meta, M-E-T-E, Meta magazine. And this is, let me give you an extract here. Right, I'm quoting here. Everything is assembled in the Mandelo Delario factory. But what's even more important to Motoguzzi is that it's an all Italian brand. Even the parts they don't directly manufacture are made in Italy by Italian companies. Heritage is our strength, press officer Alberto Cani told half a dozen journalists as they carefully sipped nuclear hot coffee and nibbled Italian pastries. The heritage is the reason why we've flown to northern Italy in late March. We did it to ride Goodsey's new lineup of V8 models, etc., etc., etc. Right, and I'm going to give you one more example from The Sun. Motoguzzi is still, uh, Motoguzzi still produce bikes like the ones they made in the 60s and 70s. Quoting here, lots of manufacturers have come up with something new that looks old, uh, then tried to claim for some, tenuous for some tenuous reason that heritage exists. Motoguzzi is not that kind of manufacturer. 
it still produces bikes that look like the bikes it built back in the 60s and 70s. But more than that, they are still built in the same factory where the company built the very first Guzzi in 1921, overlooking Lago Como in Mandela Delario, Italy. We've been to the factory many times. If you're a biker, you can't fail to feel the romance of the motorcycling in the area. If Harley Davidson's as American as apple pie, then Moto Guzzi is Italian as spaghetti bolognese. Okay, I was completely wrong. I think Moto Guzzi is completely and utterly made, manufactured, everything. It is as Italian as it gets. So I, I was completely wrong. I should have done some research before just listening to someone make a comment on, uh, on a YouTube video. Ah, just one more sip. Right. Oh... Oh, I've just seen, I've got an email from, I had such an interesting point to do actually for this video, but uh, for this video, for this episode, but I'll have to save it for next week because I'm coming close to time. That's from Nema. Nema, I will get to us next week. I cannot wait to look into that because that's a brilliant one. Right. I wanted to finish off the last bit of James's. As for the question of whether it matters whether a motorcycle is made in the factory of origin, uh, I do think it matters if... That is the lifestyle that that motorcycling brand is trying to sell. I think from a business perspective, Triumph moving their production to Thailand does make sense. And they do a great job building cars and bikes in Thailand. But Triumph is selling British motorcycling and leading hard and leaning hard on the heritage, which is why they love slapping the Union Jack on everything. So from an ethical standpoint, they should be built in Britain. I've been thinking about this so much. I, I genuinely get both sides of it, I do. If you're looking from a business point of view, it makes perfect sense to outsource because it's incredibly expensive building anything in the UK. I'm just insanely expensive. But, but Triumph do sell a lot on the heritage, they do. Uh, where does that leave me? Look, in reality, I don't think it matters for me. Ah, but then if someone said to me, Freddie, oh, here's the thing. If someone said to me, Freddie, do you want a Rolex? Yes, please. Yes, please. I would love a Rolex. It's my dream to own one. Um, look, R Rolex, they actually now, they build their, their watches in China. No, it's a, it's a brilliant modern state-of-the-art factory in China. Superb, superb. So now, now Rolex are building in China. It's much cheaper. And actually, the quality is, is pretty much as good. It really is very good out there. Is that okay? Or, or would you prefer one that's, that's built in Switzerland? Because, you know, it's a Swiss watch. You know, they, they are the finest Swiss watches. Um, how do you feel about that, Freddie? Oh, I would I'd quite like one built in Switzerland, please. See, this is the problem. I get it. I do. You know, you are, it's a hard one. And I'm a huge Triumph fan, James. So this is, you're putting me in an awkward position here. Yeah, I get your point. Swiss watches must be made in Switzerland. A, a Rolex, Tag, Heuer, Omega. They, they must be made in Switzerland. They must. That is completely essential. They must. So should the same not be true of Triumph? Oh, I don't want to answer it. I don't want to answer it.
I don't know. I'll just leave you with that thought there. Right. Okay. I'll end it there. Thank you so much, everyone, to listening to this week's episode. And thank you so much to Excel Moto for sponsoring this week's podcast episode. Go and check them out. All of the details will be in the written description of this podcast episode. Please do send me over any of your emails. I love reading all of them. It's dob.bs at outlook.com. You can find all of my details, freddydobbs.com. Have a brilliant week all, and I'll speak to you in the next one.